Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, and I want to look at two verses, 12 and 13, because I, I really like this passage of Scripture. As we said last week, Hebrews is full of a lot of warning passages where the writer is warning the people about the possibility of falling away. What was the big temptation in the book of Hebrews? They were Jews who were Christian, Christian Jews, who were tempted to go back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to warn them and encourage them to stay strong in the faith. And so let's look at chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how does chapter, chapter 3, verse 12 start? What, what does he start with? He says what? Take care. Which literally means watch carefully for any upcoming hazards or pitfalls that would lead you into dangerous territory. Look. Be on guard. What does he say? Be on guard against what? An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he says, look, watch, be on guard. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about when I was a college student, I did something pretty stupid, okay? I lived in Colorado Springs, and um, it was an early morning, 8 o'clock class. I went to the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Do one of you guys want to get the door back there? Um, and I had to drive to campus because I lived at home with my parents. And um, it was one of those mornings where um, it was snowing really, really bad. And I, actually, it wasn't morning. It was evening. Take that back. I drove in and spent all day at school. I went out to my car, and it was fogged up. You know how there's ice and all that kind of stuff where you, where you can't see? Okay. Well, I was in a hurry to get home because I wanted to watch some TV show or basketball game or something. I think it was like Beverly Hills 90210 or something like that. I don't, I don't remember. It was something like a 91 or 92, some big show that you're like, I got to get home to watch this. So anyway, what I did was I decided that I was just going to do a little hole on the front windshield. <laughs> and I was not going to heat up my car. And I was just, and so what I did, and, and they had, and so I kind of like backed up in the parking lot of the of the college and um thankfully i didn't hit other cars but i started to like to weave in out of cars and i couldn't see and and finally i just stopped and i said sean you are so stupid what are you doing take just a few more minutes to go scrape take a few more minutes to turn on the defrost don't be in such a hurry look be on guard Take a look around. That's the, that's the word that the writer of Hebrews is using here. Take care. Look around. Be on guard against an unbelieving heart. And it's that falling away that we talked about last week, this whole idea of, 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 of apostasy. Now, this is basically taken from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. So let's turn. Keep your finger in Hebrews, but let's turn back to Psalm 95. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to quote a lot of scripture from the Old Testament. And he quotes Psalm 95, 7 through 11 here. 
Well, let's actually start with verse 6. Psalm 95, verse 6. Psalm 90, chapter 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they've not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. <clears throat> now, do you know what happened at Meribah? Do you remember back? That's where the people complained against Moses. That's where the people wanted to go back to Egypt. And, and so basically, they were hardening their hearts. And that, and that generation, that first generation, what happened to that first generation in the wilderness? They died. And we looked at that last week. So when you go back to Hebrews, what does he say? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that you may not be what? Hardened, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what does he say here? What's the best way you and I can prevent ourselves from straying? What does he say? Exhort one another, how many days? Every day. Now what does it mean to exhort? The word exhort here, exhortation it's the it's the greek word parakaleo which means to come alongside or to call alongside basically it means to get down in the trenches with a person and walk alongside them in their journey it's not this idea where you're a cheerleader on the sideline and you're clapping people on with this happy clappy smile on your face saying good job go do it it's more of, I'm going to put my arm around you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to carry your burden. We're in this together. I'm going to come alongside. So we need to be exhorting one another every day. Now, has anybody ever heard of Adoniram Judson? He was a missionary to Burma in the 1800s. And during the Civil War between Burma and England, he was thrown into jail. And as a matter of fact, the jail was so bad that they hung him by his thumbs. And his wife, Anne, would come in every day, and she would walk past the jeering guards who would yell profanities at her. This was back in the 1800s. And she would go to her husband, who was in the prison cell, and she would say to, this, to him every day, Don't give up, Adoniram. God will give us the victory. She did that every day. She came to him every day. And encouraged and says, don't give up. God will give us the victory. Now, one day, her visit stopped. She, she stopped coming. And eventually, Adoniram was let out of prison, and he went to go find her, and she was dying. It was a government-assigned tent. It was, she was lying on tattered blankets. Her body was shrunken, and she basically was, was malnutrition, and she was dying. And he finally found her after he got out of prison, and he went to find her. And you know what she said to him before she died one last time? Don't give up, Adoniram. God will give us the victory. And if you read the biography of Adoniram Judson, you find out that he went through a lot of heartache, lost a lot of children, lost his wife, lost his second wife, and didn't really have a very huge successful ministry while he was alive. But if you look at Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar, his, his legacy of how many people... Basically, you, you can go back and trace almost a million people that got saved through his, through his ministry. 
And what was it? His wife came to him daily and exhorted him and encouraged him. So here's a question for you. Has another believer exhorted you today? Or have you exhorted another believer today? Because what does the Bible say? We're to do it how many days? Every day as long as it's called today. So when is it not going to be called today? Tomorrow. But then it's going to be called today. When will we not have to encourage each other anymore? When we're in heaven. We won't need encouragement because we'll be perfect. Okay, but what, what does the encouragement help us do? That you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now let's just talk something real quick here about sin. Notice how it describes sin. How does it describe sin? Sin is deceitful. Would you agree that sin cheats, it lies, it deceives? What does sin promise? Pleasure, happiness. Don't let anybody tell you sinning's not fun. I will be the first one to stand up in front of you as a pastor and say sinning is fun. If it wasn't fun, people wouldn't do it. The problem is, is that sin deceives us into thinking that we are going to find pleasure, we are going to find joy, we are going to find purpose in things for which we were not created to find those in. Who are we supposed to find our ultimate purpose, pleasure, and joy in? Christ. Sin comes along and says, have fun. There are no consequences. Do what you want to do, and it deceives us. And pretty soon what happens, as more and more you're deceived, what does the Bible say is going to happen to you? You're going to get hardened. Hardened. Interesting word in the original language. Hardened was really a, um, a word used for a medical condition to describe the swelling of a bone. Does anybody know what atherosclerosis is? You doctors, people out there. It's the hardening of the arteries. The Greek word here is sclerosis. So it's a hardening of the heart. What happens, what causes a heart attack? The hardening of the arteries. If you put too much cholesterol and stuff in your body, you don't have enough healthy flow to your heart, and eventually you can get a heart attack or stroke. And that's exactly what the writer here is saying, is you can have a spiritual heart attack. You could have a spiritual stroke. You could have a hardening of the arteries, a a hardening, a sclerosis, if you keep becoming deceived by sin. How do we prevent being deceived by sin? We encourage each other every day. We exhort each other every day. Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 4, talking about unbelievers, he says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. The word callous there is the same word that the writer of Hebrews uses. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do you think there comes a point in time where the more and more you sin, the more your heart gets calloused? And the more you get hardened, and the more sin doesn't bother you, and the more you begin to what? Eventually, what does he say there in verse 12? It could lead to an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, obviously, I don't think that can happen to a true believer. I don't think you'd ever get to the point as a true believer where you, be, you have an unbelieving heart like in a permanent state. But there's a danger of slacking, I guess, or what's the better word? Getting lackadaisical in your Christian walk by being deceived by sin. And that's why we need each other. We were never, we were never called to live the Christian life as a lone ranger. 
people that, I mean, you may know somebody whose church is their television. They watch a televangelist. They don't interact with other believers, and that's, that's their basic, their, their Christian experience. I'm not saying that that person's not a Christian, but is that, are they going to be as healthy as they could be getting the benefit of being around the body of other, other believers? We, we need each other, okay? So I just want to encourage you there to say, the writer of Hebrews says, encourage, encourage one another every day. So here's your task. Here's your mission if you choose to accept it. Go this whole next week encouraging somebody every day. And I know it's hard for me because what, what's, what's the bottom line with most of our lives? What are we thinking about? Me. I'm thinking about me. And why isn't that person encouraging me? Or why is this happening to me? Well, we need to get over ourselves and begin to start encouraging one another. And that can be done in different ways. We can write notes. We can write emails. We can give phone calls. We can, it doesn't have to be like a huge you know, love fest where I come and hug you. You can do it. I mean, it could just be a simple thing as seeing somebody in the hallway at church and saying, you know what, I, I've been praying for you, and I just want to let you know that I really, you know, God laid me on your heart, and I, and I want to encourage you today or something like that. Or you can just send an email, you know, or, or just even Facebook now, social media. That's a good way to encourage people. And you can, I mean, how many of you, let's just do a little poll here. How many of you sometimes get daily encouragement from Facebook, that those of you that are on Facebook? Um, some of you that aren't on Facebook, you're like, what is he talking about? Um, hopefully, most people understand Facebook. And that's kind of an interesting way, social media, to encourage people. Okay, so I went back through chapter 3. We went through chapter 6 last week. We're going to move to chapter 9. We're just kind of skipping all over the place. I'm not dealing with Melchizedek because I don't understand it. It's just bottom line. <laughs> Somebody that's smarter than me can teach that. So if we have any takers tonight, come teach on Melchizedek. Let's just turn to <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9. I, I mean, I know, I know what it is. I'm just not prepared to go into the depth. I know Dawn probably knows what it is. She's smarter than me. Okay, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Let's read Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Wow, we. There's a lot in that passage of Scripture. Let me give you a quote by J.I. Packer. Everybody needs to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you haven't read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, every Christian needs to read that before they go to heaven, and every Christian needs to read Pilgrim's Progress before they go to heaven. Then you're not going to be let in if you don't read those two books. No, I'm, just, no, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Spurgeon actually said, Spurgeon said, I don't think you'd be let into heaven if you hadn't read Pilgrim's Progress. But <clears throat> there's a chapter, I don't know what number of chapters, but in J.I. Packer's book, it's called The Heart of the Gospel. That chapter alone, every Christian needs to read, The Heart of the Gospel chapter. Let me give you a quote here from J.I. Packer, from that, from that book. Christ quenched God's wrath against us by obliterating our sins from His sight. 
Jesus Christ has shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice by becoming our representative substitute in obedience to his Father's will and receiving the wages of sin in our place. I love the wording he uses there when he says he has obliterated our sins from his sight. Jesus quenched God's wrath. He quenched it. He exhausted it. He took it upon himself. And so think about the image here. Christ took the wrath of God in our place so that our sin could be obliterated. What does it mean to be obliterated? Blown off the map. So your sin has been blown off the map, if you will. And we're going to look at that because this is a powerful passage of Scripture. So there's, there's four things. Or there's probably more that we could talk about, but I've kind of succinctly given us four major teachings or four major ideas from this small passage of Scripture. So let's look at these. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. Notice what he says there in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places. Now, what we're talking about here is the writer of Hebrews, and like I said last week, it gets kind of confusing because he's going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and he's making these comparisons. In the Old Testament, if you guys remember from the Old Testament class, what's the big portable tent that used to travel around the wilderness with the people? It was called the tabernacle, okay? And then you had the holy place, right? And then what was in the very middle of the tabernacle? The most holy place or what was called the holy of holies. What happened in the Holy of Holies? Does anybody remember what happened? The Day of Atonement. One day. Okay, one day of year, the Day of Atonement. What did the high priest do? The high priest, and the high priest, okay, so on the Day of Atonement, you have the high priest in the, in the line of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. One man, one man entered into the Holy of Holies, and what did he do? What was he wearing when he went in there? Does anybody remember? He wore an ephod. What was embedded in the ephod? The 12 stones from the 12 tribes. And when he went in there with the 12 tribes embedded into his clothing, he was representing the totality of God's people. Okay, so when he was going in there, he wasn't representing the Ammonites or the Canaanites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites. He was substituting himself or representing himself for the people of God, by wearing those 12 tribes embedded into his ephod, he goes in there, and what does he do in there? He offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people. What's in there? The Ark of the Covenant. You sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. You, you kill the, the lamb or the goat, and then there's the blood sacrifice. And what does that do? It covers the people's sin for how long? One year until what? The next year until the next year. So people are kind of good for 365 days, and then it starts over again, over and over and over and over again. So Jesus, what does this, what does this passage say? Who's our high priest? Okay, and it says Jesus went into the holy place. Now, did Jesus literally go into the temple? Trick question. Okay. Where is, the, where is the holy place? Everybody's like, what is it? 
He is the holy place. He's the temple. We're the temple. So who's the temple, Jesus or us? Yes. Okay. Now, what I believe is talking about here is that he said that he went through the greater and more perfect tent. I think what he's talking about is that in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended through heaven. And where is he at right now? What did we see last week? He's at the right hand of the Father. And so I think the holy place, where the holy place you know, metaphorically speaking, is that Jesus is at the right... He is the holy place, but He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, in a holy place in heaven. So, so it's this whole metaphor that Jesus alone is the one. Now, what did, this, what did the Old Testament high priest have to do? Every year. What does Jesus do? He did it once for all. Now, can I stop real quick and talk about Roman Catholicism since the Pope was chosen today? What is the Pope called? He's called the Vicar of Christ. What does vicar come from? Vicarious. Substitute. Okay? So the Pope is acting as Christ's substitute on earth as a fallible man. In the Lord's Supper, the way the Roman Catholics celebrate the Eucharist, here's what the the vicar of Christ does, not just the Pope, but any priest. Here's what, and I think I've talked about this before, in the Eucharist, when you take the Roman Catholic Mass, the Eucharist, the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ, pulls Jesus down from heaven onto the table and sacrifices him afresh, and you partake of his blood and his body. And if you do not do that through the priest's mediatorial work on your behalf in the Mass, you don't get to go to heaven. Does that scare anybody? What does that say about the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus? You could say this, and I know this is being recorded, and and it may be um, people out there that that would be very offended, but we're, we're amongst family here. I would say... By the basis of that belief system alone, the Roman Catholic Church what is wrong about that. Thank you, Don. Let me just say this as well. Let me just say this as well. After the Protestant Reformation, when Luther nailed his 95 Theses and he went before the Diet of Worms and said, I will not recant... And, you know, John Calvin came on the scene and you had the Protestant reformers. Uh, Roman Catholic Church did not like that. And so they came out with the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent, which is still binding today on the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent has said this about us Protestants. Those who believe that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, with imputed righteousness through the justification by faith alone, those that believe that, Without works, if you believe you're saved without works, you are anathema. You are unorthodox. You are a heresy. So the Roman Catholic Church, by their official teachings, looked at us as heretical because we believe in faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. So when you go through the book of Hebrews, you see here that the sacrifice of Christ is a once and for all done deal. We call it the finished work of Christ. Is there anything else that has to be done? What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? It is finished. 
And I am highly offended that a human being would pull Jesus down from heaven and sacrifice him over again. That's the height of arrogance and the height that, to me, you have a sovereign God who is the ascended Christ in heaven, who's finished his work, he's seated at the right hand of God, and you have a man pulling him down. To me, that's the height of blasphemy, really. And I'm sorry those are strong words, but that's, it bothers me. So let's move on. Okay. Number two. Secondly, let me just make a caveat because I need, to, I need to qualify my statement just in case there's some people that they're, they're listening online or who have Roman Catholic friends or still the Roman Catholic teaching. The teaching of the official church is unbiblical. It doesn't mean that there may be individual Roman Catholics who are saved. Is that, does that make sense? Okay. So the teaching as a system, I think, is unbiblical. It doesn't mean those within it aren't genuine Christians, okay? So let's, let's make a distinction between the official teaching and those within it, okay? But there's a direct correlation. If you're within it and that's the teaching, the, the higher probability is that you're taking that teaching and that, there's, that you need to get out of it. Is that fair enough? Okay. All right, number two. He actually secured our redemption. It wasn't, Jesus didn't say, it is possible. It is halfway completed. What does it say there? He secured. He obtained and eternal redemption. In other words, I like what our friend Artaxerxes says. He got what he paid for. Amen. Jesus got what he paid for. What did he pay for? Us. And he got it. He got what he paid for. Now, number three, Jesus was without sin. What does it say here? He's saying, verse 13, he's, he's comparing the lesser to the greater. He's saying, basically, if a, if a defiled person like a, like a human priest went into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled the blood of goats and heifers, and that purified the nation of Israel for a year. If a, if a sinful human was able to do that, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, not an animal, but Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus was without blemish. What did the lamb in the Old Testament have to be? It had to be without spot or blemish. Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. If you want to know more about that, come this Sunday because that's what we're going to talk about. Let me just give you a little caveat just to pique your interest. If all Jesus did was die on the cross and rise again, we still wouldn't be saved. We need his perfect life as well as his death and his resurrection. I'll let you ponder that and come back and, and understand that on Sunday. Number four, his cross purifies our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. There's, there's a purifying work in the cross where Jesus frees us to serve Him. What are dead works? Yeah, anything that you would do to somehow think that you can be acceptable to God. Whatever system you're in, whether that's trying to be a good person, whether that's obeying the Ten Commandments, whether that's going to to mass every Sunday, whether that's trying to, 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 to you know, live to the principles of Oprah, whether it's the Mormon church. I mean, anything that you try to do to earn God's favor, that's a dead work. That work is going to lead you straight to death. But Jesus Christ's blood purifies us, makes us white, cleanses us so that we can serve the living God. So now we serve Him because we, we don't... We don't, earn, we don't work to earn the salvation. We, we serve Him after we're saved, and we're able to do that because He's purified us, okay? Now, let's look at verse 15. He's the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, we've got language here that's very crucial to the book of Hebrews. The new 
covenant, which assumes what? There was an old covenant. What was the old covenant? We talked a little bit about that. It's the old sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, the the holy days, all the things that the nation of Israel had under the old covenant that God gave them at Mount Sinai. Jesus is the mediator. What does it mean, the mediator? What's a mediator? He's a go-between. He's the instigator of a new covenant. So we've got to go back to the Old Testament because I want to take us back to Jeremiah because, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah prophesied that there would be a new covenant. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant said there's going to be a new covenant. And when Jesus came, even when he was on earth, he said, I'm instituting a new covenant. And it has to do with blood. Okay, so let's go back to Jeremiah. Keep your finger in Hebrews, and let's go back to Jeremiah 31. And this is where Jeremiah prophesies, and actually through the mouth of the Lord, um, this is God speaking. So um, it's Jeremiah is actually... It's, this is actually God speaking. So when God says, I'm going to do this, it's, it's God saying he's going to do this. Okay, so let's look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay, let's just stop right there. When did God give them that covenant? At the base of Mount Sinai. And do you remember? Moses comes down, he reads the Ten Commandments, and what do the people do? We will obey all of what you tell us, God. We'll do it. What do we know happens? They don't. They go into exile. I mean, we saw it in our Nehemiah study. They get kicked out of the land. And God, it's interesting, God calls, I was their husband. You see the imagery there? God had married himself to the nation of Israel. They were his bride. In the New Testament imagery, the church is the bride of Christ. But God says, you're like, I'm like a jilted husband here. You have committed spiritual adultery against me and you've been unfaithful, and you've walked out on me, even though I made this, even though you said we're going to do it. So this new covenant's going to be different. Okay, the old covenant was based upon obedience to the law. What's the new covenant going to be? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay. So, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, says, Aha. Remember the Old Testament talked about a new covenant? I'm here, and I'm going to institute it right now. When does he do that? When does Jesus institute the new covenant? At the Lord's Supper, right before his death. Let's look at those passages of Scripture. How was this covenant inaugurated? Well, it was inaugurated initially at the Last Supper, ultimately on the cross. Okay, but he, he, he introduces it at the, at the Last Supper, or what we call the Lord's Supper. So Matthew 26, 26 through 28, listen to the wording that Jesus uses. 
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what does Jesus mention here? A covenant. It's so mind-boggling that Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and as he breaks the bread and gives the drink, he's saying, okay, I am instituting what the Old Testament types and shadows we're looking at. The new covenant has come. And we're picturing it right now in the bread and in the wine. And this is a picture of what's about to happen. This is the new covenant. And it's in my blood. Okay, what does Luke 22.20 say? Uh, and likewise, the cup they had eaten, saying, "This cup is poured out. This cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood." So Jesus instituted it at the Lord's Supper and ultimately fulfilled it on the cross when He died and shed His blood. So the new covenant came into effect at the cross. And, and God prophesied that in the Old Testament. said, there's come a, come a day when I'm gonna, the new covenant's going to come. And so Jesus on the scene says, okay, it's here. Now, Paul, when Paul tells us how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26? He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way... He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The new covenant was inaugurated was inaugurated in the Lord's Supper, was fulfilled in the cross. And today, how do we celebrate the new covenant? When we take the Lord's Supper, we look back at what Jesus did. Now, let's look at Jeremiah here because what are the promises? It's interesting when you go back because there's a lot of people that have misconceptions about the Old Testament. The Old Testament's all law. The Old Testament, God was a mean God in the Old Testament. And he wiped people out. God's a good guy in the New Testament because he just loves everybody. True or false? False. Is there grace in the Old Testament? Yes. Let's look at the promises that God says he's going to do back in Jeremiah. These are beautiful promises that the Old Testament believers were given that were going to happen when Christ came. So what are the promises of the new covenant? Well, here's the first one. We receive the glorious truth of being born again by the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you get that, Sean? doesn't say anything about being born again by the Holy Spirit. Are you putting words into the Bible? Look at verse 33. What does it say? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Okay, how did the law come in the Old Testament? Externally on stones. Moses came down the mountain with external stones that the law was written upon them, and they had to somehow obey. Could they obey, really? How in the world are you able to obey unless you have something happen on the inside? Now, I say they were born again by the Holy Spirit. That's a New Testament understanding, reading back into the Old Testament, which is a good way to do hermeneutics, a good way to do Bible study. The Old Testament doesn't say the Holy Spirit came and caused us to be born again, but what is the imagery of of having a new heart? It's the Holy Spirit coming and giving us 
the new birth. And as a matter of fact, Moses prophesied. Let me give you all these Old Testament scriptures to talk about this promise. Moses even said, Moses himself said back in Exodus 31, 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with them on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So Moses had the external law written with the finger of God, but the promise now is that that's going to be written where? Not on stone, in our hearts. So what does Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 say? And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, what in the world does it mean to have your heart circumcised? I thought other body parts were circumcised, not hearts. What's the imagery here? It's a cutting of... What's, what's circumcision, guys? We're all adults here. What's circumcision? It's a cutting away of something unnecessary, I guess, as a visible way to mark out the people of God as God's people. So what do you think a spiritual circumcision of the heart is? God cuts away the old, dead, stony heart, and he does a heart transplant. What does he put in instead? A new spiritual heart. We call that being born again. Now, who does that? Do we cut ourselves open and do the heart transplant? We can't because we're dead. What does God say? I will do that. The Lord will do that. The Lord's going to do that. And then we find out in Ezekiel chapter 36, we've looked at this many, year, many times over the years, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Uh, and this is God speaking. I will sprinkle king water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be very careful to obey my rules. How many times does God say, I will, 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 I will. It's called monergistic sovereign regeneration. God alone is the one that does it. I'm starting to preach now. I'm sorry, but that excites me. Because just think about it. If it was left to us to do it, what do we ever do? change our hearts god has to do that and he promised in the old testament i'm going to do it i am going to do it now we could look at a whole bunch of other passages of scripture but for the sake of time tonight i can let you go back and look at those like john 3 the born the famous born again passage titus 3 talks about being regenerated second corinthians 3 second corinthians um 3 17 um but, but that's truth number one and that's a glorious truth because here's what happens in the new birth. What are you able to do now? You as a Christian can do what? You can obey because you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have a new heart and God's going to move you and urge you and compel you to obey in his power, not your own. Okay. What's the second blessing of the covenant? Well, the second blessing of the covenant, I'll pa- pass all these scriptures that are up there. On... Whoops. Is the second one up? Oh, they're switched around. Okay. We'll just go down there on the bottom. The second blessing of the new covenant is that we receive the glorious truth of being brought into intimate fellowship with the Father. Intimate fellowship with the Father. What does it say there at the end of um, verse 33? I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God. Now, Isn't God already their God? Let me ask you a question. Let me see how I want to word this. Is God the Father of all people? 
God is the creator of all people, but he's not the father of all people. Now, God is father, right? Regardless of whether people trust him or not. But who is God specifically father to? Only those who have trusted him through Christ. Because if you die without Christ, you won't meet God as your father. You'll meet him as your, as your judge. But this promise here is God says, I will be their God. Through Jesus Christ, we have intimate access to the Father. Now, I did something, and nobody from staff is here, are they? So this is totally new. Okay, I don't see anybody from my staff. The question that we've got to ask is, let's go back in Hebrews real quick. Can, you, can we go back? And I want, to, I want to draw what we saw last week. Oh, no, Sean's drawing on the board. Um, in chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, stay in Jeremiah. We'll come back. This just popped into my head, but I, I wanted to do this. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4, 16. This is not in your notes, but... And then we're going to go to Revelation, okay? This is not in your notes. This just came in. This is what I, it's what I just remembered. I taught this to my staff yesterday during staff meeting. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the what? The throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We, because of Christ, we have ultimate access to what? The very throne of God. Did you want to know what the throne of God looks like? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to draw it, okay? Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 4. And I don't have, enough, I don't have multicolor markers here. No, I, don't, I, can, I can. Well, maybe. Yeah, go get me some. No, no, don't worry about it. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 describes the throne of God. So what do we have access to? I want to, I want to show you this in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. And I'm going to try my best to draw this. That's an, a, little, a little exercise for preschoolers. Draw heaven. Well, you can draw it right here. I mean, we can draw it, but we can't draw it the best we can. But we've got beautiful imagery here of what God's throne looks like. Okay? So Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, John doesn't outright say this is the Father on the throne, but it's the Father. Okay? And he sat there, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So what's coming out of the throne? These brilliant colors of jasper and carnelian and rainbows, and it's just this beautiful emanation of what? Glorious color. And around the thrones were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So what's around the throne? you got 24 elders. Don't ask me what those are, but they're 24 elders. They're elders. All right. Verse 5. From the throne come what? Flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And before the throne are burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, as it, there, there was, as it were, a glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So you've got the four living creatures next to the throne. So what does this throne look like? How do you get to the throne? What do you got to cross? You've got to cross the glassy sea. 
you got to get past the elders. you got to get past the four living creatures. you got to get past the lightning and the thunder and the, and the torch of fire and the emanating bright, brilliant light to get to this one on the throne. Can any old person just walk into God's presence? What would happen if you walked into that throne room without Christ? You would be obliterated. And the writer of Hebrews just says we have access to that. We can come to this throne with confidence to find help in our time of need. Does that blow your mind for just a moment there? The very throne room of where God is, through Christ we have access to that throne room. And so when God says, I will be their people, and when the writer of Hebrews says, let us approach with confidence, let us come with confidence before the throne, that's where we, none of us would dare approach that throne in our own righteousness. We can't. If anybody says they're going to get to heaven on their own good deeds, go read Revelation 4, and I'm going to figure out how you're going to get past all that. There ain't no way without Christ. What's the third blessing? Back to Jeremiah. Sorry, I had to just go on that little tangent because that's pretty mind-blowing. All right, Jeremiah, back to Jeremiah. The third blessing... Okay, the first blessing is we get born again. We get, the, we get a new heart. The second blessing is we get absolute intimate relationship with the Father. We get access to the throne room of God. The third is we receive the glorious truth of being totally and absolutely forgiven of all sin. What does he say there? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Does that mean God just is a forgetful God or God chooses to forget our sin? What does Psalm 103.12 say? As far as the east is from the west, so far, does our, so, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Where do the east and west meet? They don't. Isaiah 43.25, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for on my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Praise the Lord. On the day of judgment, when you stand before that throne, is God going to have a record of your sins? They are going to be at the bottom of the ocean, buried because Christ bore them, and you're going to be there in Christ's righteousness. That's great news. And then Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, there's a fourth blessing of the new covenant, which we don't find in Jeremiah, per se. We have to go back to Hebrews. So let's go back to Hebrews. It's being purchased out of bondage. It's being purchased out of bondage. It's it's called redemption. Redemption. Look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, what is redemption? Redemption is basically the whole idea that God buys us out of slavery. God buys us out of bondage. Christ purchases our, our redemption. And then the, the, fifth, the fifth one? Whoops. We receive the glorious truth of being perfected for all time in heaven. Go over to chapter 10, verse 12. 
chapter 10, verse 12, Hebrews. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, there's that imagery again that we saw last week, at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Don't you love it? He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That means we're going to be perfect. We're going to have a home in heaven. We will be perfected for all time in in heaven. Now go back to to chapter 9, verse... um, Let me see where it was here. Yeah, those those who are called. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We have on reserve for us an inheritance waiting in heaven that Christ purchased and we will have that one day because of his finished work on the cross for us. And that was all prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled it, started to fulfill it. Well, Jesus started to really fulfill it when he was born in Bethlehem, but inaugurated it, the new covenant at the Lord's Supper, and then fulfilled it on the cross. Okay? So beautiful things there about about Jesus. Okay, let's move into a different section of chapter 10. Again, this is an overview of Hebrews. We're, We're not able to look at every single passage, but let's look at 19 through 25. This may be a section that you're somewhat familiar with. You may have heard this before, but um, he's still going on this whole topic of Jesus is greater than the high priest. Jesus is greater than the, than the sacrificial system. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. Jesus is, is better and, super, and superior. So let's look at Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What do we just show you here about this revelation picture? What do we have? We have confidence to enter where? The throne. The the holy places. The throne. We have confidence. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. (laughs) And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's that encouragement piece again. What does verse 19 start with? Therefore, so he's introducing a new section. He's going to kind of, this is moving towards the end of the, of, the, of the epistle. Therefore, I'm introducing a new, a new section here. And so basically what he's doing is he's making a summary statement there in verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21 is basically a summary statement of everything he's taught for the past 10 chapters. He's just giving you like a snapshot. Okay, everything I've said up this point, here's a succinct way of saying it in these two verses. And then, moving on from there, he's going to give three exhortations for us to live it out. Let us, let us, let us, okay? So what's the first thing that he says there? We have what? Free access. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have free access. We have um, the word confidence. We have confidence it's a pretty specific word in, in the book of Hebrews. It means authorization. 
free access, complete freedom. It assumes that somehow we were barred access to God, but now we have access to Him. I will tell you a moment that I was very, very scared where I was barred access. Um, it was a, it was a f- January night, and Schindler's List was on TV for the very first time on network television. And Don stayed home, I think it was before Aiden was born, to watch Schindler's List. And I got a new job where I was supposed to sell, I don't even know I was supposed to sell, sell something. And the guy that hired me the day before said, why don't you go out and put flyers on people's, on businesses, like on Sunday night, it was Sunday night, so that Monday morning when they come up to, to work at their businesses, you could, those flyers will be there and you can do a follow-up call on those places that you did that. And so I said, okay, new job. I'll go out on a sunny night while Don's watching Schindler's List and it's snow falling, and I'll go start putting flyers on. So I went to this area in Colorado Springs where there were a bunch of businesses together. There was like a bunch of furniture stores. It was a big strip mall, okay? And so it's, you know, freshly fallen snow, so there's no other footprints but mine. So, you know, there's these footprints out there. And I think it was the Fred Astaire School of Dance that I put a... a, um, a little flyer on, and I tripped the, I must have tripped the alarm, the silent alarm. I did not know it. It's freshly driven snow, no other footprints except for mine. You've got this weird tall white guy walking around out in the middle of the night, you know, and so next thing I know, I get in my car, and I'm going to go um, drive to the next spot, and the next thing I know, I'm blockaded in by five cop cars. <laughs> They just like barricaded me in. I couldn't get out. And I'm like, oh, no, what am I doing? And I'm like, I guess this does look suspicious. It's night. There's no, these businesses are open, and there's this guy walking around, prowling around these things, and there's the only footprints are mine. What am I going to do? And so the, you know, the cop stopped me and said, what are you doing out here? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm handing out flyers for my new job. Can we see some identification? And so I showed them the flyer, and they, they probably saw that. I was so scared half to death, and they're like, okay, uh, we'll let you go. So I came home to Dawn while she's watching Schindler's List, and I said, I'm quitting. I'm not going back to that job tomorrow. This is the first and last time I'm going to get arrested the first day I'm on my job. So anyway, I know what it felt like to be blockaded in and not have you know, barred access. That's the way all of us sinners are to the throne without Christ. But when it says here we have confidence, it's this idea that we have free access. We can go directly in to God's, God's presence. Now, the main verb in this entire section here, and you always want to look for the main verbs when you do Bible study, is opened. By a new and living way, he opened. It's, it, Jesus opened a new way. It's this opening, this opening up of a new way. New. Play on words here. When you think of new, what do you think of? Grand spanking new, right? You get something out of the box and it's new. But this word new in Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, in the Greek, means freshly slaughtered. Those of you that slaughter meat, slaughter cows, it's a freshly slaughtered way. It's new. It's new. I don't know exactly why the writer of Hebrews used that play on words, but it's this whole idea that Christ's has given us it's the blood imagery he's, he's playing he's, play, he's doing a play on words with this blood imagery and what type of way is it it's a living way as opposed to the old way what was the old way we looked at the old way right 
What's Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 say? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It's a new way. He's gone through. What has he gone through? He's gone through the curtain. That is his threat, the flesh. What was the curtain? You guys remember this curtain in the Holy of Holies? To get into the Holy of Holies, what did you have there? You had a curtain. Anybody remember what happens on the day Jesus died in the temple? The curtain rips from top to bottom. Anybody know how thick that curtain was? Six inches? More like four feet. Four feet thick. It's a thick thing. So this whole temple tabernacle imagery here. And what does it also say here? Christ is the head of the church. What does it say there? Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. What's the house of God? It's not the... Who was the priest over the house of God in the Old Testament? The priest over the temple. What's the house of God now? It's not where we're worshiping. The house of God is us, the church. Who's the high priest over the church? Jesus. So who's the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Jesus. Who's the leader of the free world? It's not, I mean, the, not the free world. <laughs> Who is the leader of the free world? Who, who's the leader of the, <laughs> is there a leader of the free world? Uh, you know, I, I, I put something on Facebook today. I just said that, um, you know, the Pope is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And um, it says right there, he's the great high priest over the house of God. Now, what he's going to do here is because of that, because Jesus has given us access to the throne, Jesus has purified us, Jesus has died for us, Jesus is the great high priest, it's a new and living way, he's freshly been slaughtered with his blood for our sins. He gives us three exhortations here. And again, these exhortations are in um, the third person plural, meaning he's not saying, you guys do this. He's, not, he's saying, let us do this. He's a pastor talking to the congregation, let us, we're all in this together, let us do these things. They're also in the present tense, which means that these are to be ongoing actions. It's not like, okay, do these once in a while. It's let us keep on continually as a lifestyle doing these three things. So what are these three things to which he's calling us to do? Well, here's the first one. Let us draw near in faith. Let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near now what's the imagery here of drawing near it's all throughout hebrews we've been looking at it what does it mean why can we draw near why can we draw near he's opened the way we we've we've been sprinkled we've been cleansed we've been purified um, back there, I won't, I won't, we won't go over that Ezekiel passage again because we went, we went through it earlier, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. But because of what Christ has done, He's cleansed us. He's caused us to be born again. He's given us a new heart. God will grant us um, access. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Drawing near implies prayer, doesn't it? When you think of drawing near to the throne, the, Im- the first imagery that probably should come to your mind is prayer and worship. That I'm, I'm drawing close, I'm drawing near, I'm coming to, to God in prayer. It's a weird thing to have access to God. Do we already have access to God? Are we already saved? 
Are we already secure? Do we already have a place secured in heaven? So why do we want to keep drawing near? It's so good. <laughs> Listen to A.W. Tozer. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified in a happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Now, what in the world is he saying there? <laughs> You're like, what in the world is he saying? What he's saying is this. It's an amazing thing to be saved because we immediately have access to God. But is that enough? We want to keep going, keep drawing near, keep intimately drawing near to Christ. It's not just, okay, I'm saved, I got my fire insurance, I'm going to heaven, I got salvation in my back pocket, and I can do whatever I want now. I don't want to pray, I don't want to draw near, I don't want to have a relationship. It would be kind of like this. What if I told Don, um, Don, I love you, but for the next six months, I'm going to go live in a hotel, and I'm going to go out to eat by myself, and I'll text you every once in a while and maybe catch up with you on Facebook. But um, in, in six months, you know, I really love you, but that's kind of what we're going to do over the next six months. Now, would that show I loved her, or that we need some serious marriage counseling? Okay, what, what am I doing? Am I drawing near to her? But we're married, right? So the relationship's there, right? Just because I go live in a hotel, does that mean we're no longer married? No, the marriage, the union is still there, right? But what's, what's missing? The intimacy, the communion, the fellowship. So there's a difference in, in men that were in our Tuesday morning men's study. We, we talked about this week. There's a difference between union with Christ and communion with Christ. You remember, guys? Union with Christ is our, our initial salvation that's secure. That doesn't change. Our union with Christ doesn't change. God unites us to Christ in salvation. But our communion can fluctuate. Would you agree that there's times in your life where you feel or draw closer to God than other times? And it doesn't affect your salvation it's your intimacy. I've often illustrated this way. That's the illustration that's most recently on my mind is this illustration with living in a hotel. Um, but think about this. A father to a son. Okay, Aiden's my son. Is there anything that Aiden's going to do that's going to change the fact that he's my son? He's born, he, he's born to dawn to me. He's my son. I, 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 I mean, I guess I could disown him, but by blood, he is my son. And so Aiden loves me. I love Aiden. Let's just say one day Aiden says, you know what, Dad? Um, I'm going to slap you in the face and I'm going to, um, you know, say, shove off and I'm going to go live however I want and I don't ever want to see you again. Okay, he's made his choice, right? To, to leave, to forsake. Is he still my son? Yes. But is our, is our intimacy good? The relationship's still there, but the intimacy is not. And so there's a huge difference between... Let me just write two words. There's a difference between the relationship and fellowship. Is that a good way to put it? There's a difference between union and communion. So on this side, relationship and union, these are done deals when you become a Christian. God, God makes you his child. God purifies you. God cleanses you. You are in a union with Christ that cannot be undone. But can your fellowship and communion with Christ change? And so what's the writer of Hebrews saying here? He's saying, let's draw near. Let's not just be satisfied with our relationship, our union. Let's make a constant pursuit of continually drawing near. Let's cultivate that relationship. Let's draw near to Christ. Uh, what does this mean for us as a church? Well, it means to passionately pursue Jesus. 
to passionately pursue him. So let's look at some of these scriptures that talk about what it means to passionately pursue these. And, and, and I want you to think about these. Think about the verbs. One of the things that I like to do when I look at the Psalms, when you look at the Psalms, it's interesting to see the verbs that the psalmist uses because they really convey an emotional picture. The Psalms are very emotional. They convey a word picture of, of, of how you're supposed to, to kind of sense what the psalmist is saying. So let's look at Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come appear before my God? What verbs does he use there? Pants. Thirsts. Does that sound like it's um, a cute little you know, mug or bumper sticker type thing? That, what, what, when, a, when a deer pants... Or a dog pants. What does that mean? You are longing for Christ. You're panting for Him. You're thirsting for Him. Sometimes these words catch us, catch us off guard because we're like, whoa, these are pretty intense words. I, I'm not comfortable with this verbiage because this sounds a little intense. Am I supposed to have this intense pursuit of Christ? Yes. All right, let's look at Psalm 63, 1 through 3. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I mean, seek. We got this, sorry, pant, thirst, seek, earnestly. What's another verb in there? Uh, Thirst, faints. Okay, these are some strong words, right? Let me just ask you a question. When have you ever fainted for God? He got the point that you wanted Christ so much that you fainted for him. I'm not talking about being slain in a spirit, like if some weird you know, televangelist comes by and hits you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that point where you just want more of Jesus. Psalm 84, 1 through 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Here's another word, longs. So let's look at these verbs. My soul pants, it thirsts, it seeks, it faints, it longs. Does this sound like someone who's satisfied with the status quo in their relationship with Christ? They want more. They want to draw near. I've got union with Christ, and I'm secure in my salvation, but I want that deeper fellowship. I want that union. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. You've you've probably all heard this. This is from his, his, his Weight of Glory message we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased what he's saying there is that most christians live like they're in a mud pie and they're content with oh this is this is what i'm this is what i'm living for this is awesome and right behind them is this beautiful ocean. If they just looked behind them, they'd see what's offered them. He's saying so many Christians fool about with sex and, and drugs and rock and roll and, and all, the, all the things that all the things of this world, thinking this is going to satisfy us. And it's like sitting there making, playing in a mud puddle when you could have Christ and all that He has to offer. We're far too easily pleased. Okay, so that's the first thing. Let us draw near. Second thing, because they are always always in the book of Hebrews, wanting to what? 
waver, fall, go back to Judaism, what does he say? Let us hold fast. We find that in um, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our what? Hope. So let's ask a question. As Christians, what is hope? Is it wishful thinking? Is it crossing our fingers, hoping that things are going to work out? I really, 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 really hope. In the context of Hebrews, when the writer speaks of hope, it almost always refers to the objective work of Christ and salvation. It is not a wishful thinking or based on our feelings. So when he says, let's hold fast our hope, he's not saying, I really hope things work out. What he's saying is, let's hold fast the confidence that Christ is who he says he is. He rose from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is coming back, and what we believe is solid. Now, Jude, are Christians supposed to fight? Yes, especially if you're Nehemiah. You can go down and beat up people and pull their hair, as we saw on Sunday. No, I'm just joking. Um, Jude 3, we are to fight, but it's in a way that is a spiritual fight. Jude 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does the word mean to contend? Fight. What are we to fight for? Now, this doesn't mean we're ugly and we get in people's faces and we knock them down, but what are we supposed to hold fast and fight for? The faith. What was this faith? Once for all delivered to the saints. That means we can't mess with it, can we? So what happens when these wacky belief systems come along? When best-selling authors write these books or people say things that aren't the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Does that mean we go beat them up? No. Does that mean we go say nasty things about them? No. What does it mean? Just we stand up for the truth in the best way we know how to as individuals and as a church. So what is hope? You guys know the story about the prosperous lawyer in the late 1800s. Um, His son died of pneumonia. He was left with four girls and his wife. And so to deal with the grief, he said, honey, why don't you take the girls to England on a vacation, kind of, you know, settle down and and, and grieve over there. I've got some things I got to take care of over here in my law practice. I'll meet you guys over there. Um, Well, just a few months later, after his son died, the great Chicago fire broke out and it burned 2,000 acres of his property. And so he was so distraught over everything basically he decides he's going to go over and and, and meet his family well here's what happened the ship carrying the rest of his family collided with another ship in the fog and sank in 12 minutes he received a telegram from his wife saying come quickly i alone survive your beloved wife so his son was dead his other four children died all of his work burned in a fire. He sets sail for London. He asked the captain to notify him when the ship reached the point where his daughters died. He wanted to know where that was. And so the captain said, here's the point where your daughters died. He looks out the window and he starts to pour his heart out to God. And these are the words that he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And the Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Is that biblical hope? That's biblical hope. To lose your family, to use your business, and to know that whatever comes my way, it's well because Christ took all of my sin. That's something that the world can't produce. It's something only God can put in your heart. So the writer says, okay, draw near. Because Christ is our great high priest, passionately pursue Jesus and hold fast that confidence. And then thirdly, it's the corporate nature of how we deal with each other. Let us consider one another. He says there in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider. This word consider means to, to notice, to pay attention to look out for the welfare of others, to observe. So we're to be looking out for each other. And he gives us four specific ways we're to do this. How do we look out for each other? How do we live the Christian life together in community? How do we live together in the fellowship of believers? These these four ways from this passage of Scripture. Number one, stimulate each other to love. What does he say? Let us consider, number one, how to stir up one another to love. Isn't that interesting? Now that's the first one on the list. We need to encourage each other as long as it's called today. And the first thing we need to stir each other up to do is what? Love. They'll know we are Christians by our bumper stickers. They'll know we are Christians how loud we play Air One or K-Love from our car. They'll know how we are Christians by how big a Bible we have. If we have the ESV study Bible and we carry around with it. They'll know we are Christians by how much theology we have packed away in our head. What does the Bible say? They'll know we are Christians by the way that we love one another. So love. And the second thing he says is, well, stimulate each other to good works. Not only just love, but we need to be encouraging one another to good works. Now, good works don't save us. Good works are the outflow of what God has saved us for, but we're to be stimulating, to to spur one another on. That word, um, stimulate, the only other time it's used in the Bible was when Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement. In that context, it was negative. They split sharply. It's kind of this idea that we as Christians are to be like cattle prodding each other. I don't know if that's a good image, but that'd we're to be, be that'd be painful probably. Yeah, you, you that work with cattle, I don't know exactly how, how it would, I don't, know, I don't know how it would work, but it's this whole idea of let's get busy encouraging one another to love and good works. You've got that passage in 1 John three eighteen, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You can love a lot and talk, but not in deed. Okay? And then, notice what he says. The, the, four, the third thing is don't, a negative one. The first ones are positive. Okay, st- stir up one another to love, number one. Good works, number two. Number three, negative, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son. Don't forsake the meeting together. Now, why do you think that they were not meeting together? Yeah, fear of persecution, fear of identifying. We'll find out next week that most of these people in the book of Hebrews have been thrown in jail. So to identify with other Christians meant you may be thrown in jail yourself. So there was an embarrassment factor. It wasn't just like, well, I don't want to go to church today. I don't like those people. It was like, if I go to church today, I may be arrested and my property confiscated myself. 
So it was a big deal. Now, for us, it could just be, you know, there's the old story about the guy that said, turned to his wife on Sunday morning and said, I really don't want to go to church today. I hate that place. I hate those people. They bother me. They disturb me. They take all of my energy. I do not want to go to church today. I've had it with those people. And she gently nods and said, honey, you've got to go. You're the pastor. So <laughs> now that's not how I feel, but um, that's not how I feel because <laughs> I love you guys. But um, there's some people that just don't want to meet together as the church. And it's a sin, flat-out sin, to not gather together in church. Now, I'm not saying to be legalistic. You have to be there every Sunday, every time the doors are open, every time there's something going on. It's just a general principle is that God has called us to not forsake meeting together, to be together. And then it comes full circle. What's the last thing, the fourth one? Encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What did he say back in chapter 3? Encourage each other, what? Every day, as long as it's called today. Now, why is there an urgency? What does he say? Do it more. Encourage each other all the more because of what? What's drawing near? The day, which is the day of the Lord, the the, the second coming of Christ. There's an urgency to this. There's an urgency to us doing that. So as we look at Hebrews up to this point, um, there's a lot of exhortations. There's a lot of Christology. And what did I say last week was the main purpose of Hebrews? To make Jesus look superior to anything else this world has to offer. That he is greater than. The word better shows up, what, I think it was, what, 11 times in Hebrews? He's better. He's better. He's better. And because he is better, that can motivate us through the gospel to love and encourage and hold fast and live out the practical Christianity that we're called to do. We can't do that practical Christianity unless we first have a vision of Christ. Because if not, it's just going to be legalism. We're going to do it either out of duty or we're going to do it out of guilt. But we're not going to do it out of a passion for Christ and a vision of Christ that he gives us in the gospel.